you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And this evening we read the first three verses. Exodus 20, and there are the first three verses. And beloved, once more, just allow me to remind you that this is the Holy Word of our Holy God. Our God has made himself known. Our God indeed has revealed himself truly to us. He's done so through this inerrant, this infallible word. A word that commands our attention. And so give your ear unto it. And God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Beloved, as we look at this text, as we come to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, as it's given to us in Exodus 20, we we can't, of course, forget about the context. Uh, What we have, of course, is Israel brought wondrously out of the house of bondage, out of what the prophets would refer to as the iron furnace. She comes out of bondage and into liberality. She comes out of Egypt and into the plains of Sinai, a redeemed people. Their chains have been removed, and God, by his own right arm, has redeemed them. And when they come to Sinai, they come to a picture of divine majesty. They see, as it were, God coming down to his people. And you remember that the very words that we're reading here were words that were not spoken through the intermediation of Moses. These are words that were heard as God appeared wondrously, to the people of Israel in that moment. These are words that sounded forth, thundered from Sinai. And then we have this command. The people who are there, this newly redeemed lot, they they come and they hear that the Lord, their God, is in fact their God. And then he commands them, as we have in our text, to have no other gods before him. And beloved, read in that context, read in that moment, hearing these things as a newly redeemed people, of course, this command stands to reason, doesn't it? It seems to be the most reasonable thing that the Lord God would demand of them. He has redeemed them. Of course they wouldn't seek other deities. Of course they would not serve any but the Lord God who was theirs peculiarly and who had already by his own right arm secured their freedom. A perfectly reasonable command. You would almost wonder at that moment among the Israelites if any wondered if any could break this command. But you remember as we looked at the verse, at the third verse last time we were together, beloved, this is a text that is not purely concerned with externals. Indeed, the law is not purely concerned with externals. Because in this command, you remember that, that God says to them, you'll have no other gods before me. And he's saying there, you'll, it's not that you will not prefer any other gods before me. It's that you will not have any other gods before my gaze, my heart-searching gaze. My, my gaze that is inscrutable and penetrates in ways that the, the sight of man simply can't. That's what the Lord is saying here. He is saying here, you'll have no other gods in my sight. 
as the God who searches the heart and drives the reins. And so, beloved, this is a command that is certainly spiritual. Yes, it has external implications, of course, but but we're met immediately with the reality that God here is interested in the whole man, the whole human. They, from the heart, are to have no other gods but he. And that really is our theme this evening. Uh, You could take it even in the words of our text or close to it. The command here is, put negatively, you must have no other gods but the Lord. You must have no other gods but the Lord. And as we look at this text, beloved, as as I said to you before, as we look at the law as a whole, it's so crucial that we are apprised carefully of, of what really is commanded or forbidden in the law itself. And, and then because, beloved, we, we need to be a people who think about the law carefully and think about it not only carefully, but think about it from the heart. With our minds being renewed, we need to remember and we need to exalt the reasonableness, if you like, of this law. And so we'll consider then the reasonableness or the equity of the command. And then finally, we'll conclude with how the scriptures themselves show us examples, in this case, negative examples of that which is here commanded. And so we take, first of all, just that question, what, what is it that really is forbidden in this text? And to ask that question, we really need to ask another. And that is, what do the scriptures hold out to us as, as, as far as appearances go, as far as, as far as definitions go? as to what it is to have other gods but the Lord. What is it to have other gods than he? And strikingly, beloved, the scriptures, of course, hold these things out to us in so many ways, and, and we can divide these two, and we can divide these into two general categories. The scriptures hold out the reality that this law can be broken both by men's opinions and also by their practices. And so think about these things, first of all, in terms of, of what transpires in the mind of men, the opinions of men. How is this law broken by men in their hearts and their minds? And beloved, the first, of course, place to go naturally would be to Psalm 14 or Psalm 53. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And note how the psalmist describes this professed atheism. It is from the heart. He has disclaimed God altogether, the living God. He has none of him, wants none of him, esteems him a vanity, a nothing. And beloved, as the psalmist presents the atheist to us, he doesn't simply tell us that the atheist is one who professes to be so. He tells us the atheist is one who says these things from the heart. But this reminds us, doesn't it, that this is a command that deals integrally not just with what men might see or hear, but with what transpires in their minds. This is atheism, if you like, theoretical atheism. But beloved, this conclusion that there is no God certainly is multifaceted, isn't it? This idea that that men would come to the conclusion that there is no God has behind it, or at least in seminal form, a whole host of other things. If men begin to ask the question, is there a God? Beloved, they're entertaining the possibility that the answer to that question may be very well in the negative. If the doubt comes in, as it so often does, and from the flesh it really needs no prompting, 
Is there a God or is there a God as the God of scriptures reveals there is a God? Has God revealed himself in the word? Is God knowable, beloved? All of those suggestions from the flesh, now from the world quite openly, from the devil, all of those suggestions really in its seminal form really undergird what the atheist says in Psalm 14. That there is no God. And God here forbids the very thought from his own vantage point from the vantage point of inscrutable judgment from omniscience. He says these things are not to be. But of course we can go further. The scriptures do as well. Idolatry, of course, is something that the scriptures hold out to us as a very clear breaking of this law. But when we think about idolatry, I think it's important for us to recognize that the scriptures hold out idolatry to us in two different ways. Uh, The first way, of course, is that the object of worship is something other than the Lord Jehovah. And then there's another form of idolatry where the true God is worshipped in a wrong way. And obviously this evening our concern is with the first kind of idolatry, where where something other than God is the object of worship. But, But beloved, remember the relationship between these first two commands. The command given to us in Exodus 23 and the Exodus and the command that's given to us in verses 4 and 5 are two distinct commands. One deals with the object of worship. The other one deals, if you like, with the manner. And in this text, beloved, we're dealing then with those who would erect another God, who, who would put something else in Jehovah's place as the object of their worship. And when the scriptures talk about that kind of idolatry, the scriptures describe those things as vanities. Time and time again, you find phrases such as this. Are there among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Again, speaking of Israel, they have provoked me to anger with their vanities. The word vanity in the original, it's a very very descriptive word. These are called nothings. These are nothings, non-entities if you like. And what the word of God holds out to us is that there are those who have taken these non-entities and they have placed them in the place that Jehovah alone ought to be, in the heart of men. And beloved, as you look at this text, then what you have here is is a reminder that there is but one living God. All else are vanities, nothings, non-entities. He only is to be regarded as the living and the true God. But, beloved, again, when we think about this kind of idolatry, as the scriptures hold these things out to us, these things are not just acts that are external. These things are not just found among pagans, but as we'll see in just a moment's time, this kind of idolatry where things are placed in Jehovah's place, as you well know, as you and I both know by experience. These things are prevalent among us. These things can be found in the breast of every fallen man. But to press further, the scriptures hold out also that this command is broken when men misbelieve what God has revealed. I think this is perhaps one aspect of the law that we've forgotten that misbelief itself is a violation of this command. The scriptures hold this out clearly to us. 
When, when the apostle looks at his own countrymen, he puts it this way, he says, Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, he asks, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. And so he is saying very pointedly, Israel has failed. In his generation, Israel has turned away from the living God. Because they have not sought salvation from his hand in the way that he's ordained it, through Jesus Christ and by faith. But I want you to notice, in the very next several lines, Paul goes on to say something else. It's quite staggering. He says, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Why is that text so staggering? It's staggering because what the apostle is saying is, these ones do not have knowledge, or they do not have right knowledge, but they possess a zeal that seems to be a zeal of, for God. Beloved, it's possible. It's possible for men and for women to be interested in divine things, and even to have a zeal like what we're, what's described in Romans 10, and themselves to be zealous about a wrong thing, and to be rightly condemned for it. I think we've forgotten that, friend, I really do. The idea that, that, that somebody could be sincerely misguided, and that themselves still be culpable for their sin, that's something that our culture simply despises. But the scriptures hold it out to us very plainly, don't they? I mean, when Christ turns to the disciples and says, there will, there will come a day where they will take you into the synagogue, or they will destroy you, rather, and they will think they're doing God a service, Christ is not saying there that they will make a theatrical display of it all, but themselves know, really, that they're not actually serving God. No, Christ is speaking there about a sincere belief, misguided as it is, that they're doing God's service. And so, beloved, the Scriptures hold out to us very really, that if we misbelieve, beloved, we're culpable for it. We're culpable for it. And beloved, as we look at this text, then we find here that the law does penetrate the inmost thoughts of men. Anything that God has revealed, beloved, anything that God has revealed in his word, we are to believe it. Whether it is most clearly revealed as the fundamentals of our faith are, or it's more obscure to us, as others are. If we don't believe it or we misbelieve it, we are the ones at fault. And this commandment requires us to know God as he's revealed himself, in all that he has revealed. But as I said to you before, this command deals not only with opinions, it deals with practice. And so take what you have in Titus, where there the, the, the apostle writes that there are those who profess that they know God, but in their works they deny him. The older writers would talk about a difference between a theoretical and a practical atheism. This latter text deals with what we would call a practical atheism, where, where they profess God all day long. They, they say that there is a God in heaven, and they may go so far as to say, that, and Jesus Christ is his son, but, but their lives seem to indicate that they don't believe that there is a God. Not a God who is judge of all the earth. Not, not a God who is coming to set all things right. Who will render unto men according to their deeds. 
They don't believe in that God. At least that's what their works say. And so, beloved, when, when, when men and women profess that they know God, but their lives seem to indicate otherwise, it is, in fact, a violation of this command. They've broken the law because their works testify that in their inmost being, they have no interest, no love for this God. But we can go even further. Beloved, again, in our practice, when it comes to his worship, where men and women testify really and most clearly their devotion to God, the Lord in this command requires that they approach him from the heart. This people, says the Lord, draw near with me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. He's saying all that you've given me is formal, nothing from the heart. And he goes even further. In Malachi 1, he puts it this way. Ye have polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the Lord, the table of the Lord is contemptible. You see, beloved, in this text, we are required to love the God and to love our God and to worship him from the heart. And God here clearly says, if we come coldly, if we come with, with what, the, what the prophet says here is a, a kind of derision with regard to the worship of our God, beloved, we are guilty. To whom shall I speak and give warning that ye may hear? says the prophet. Behold, their ears uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. So now the Lord comes in his word and he, and he says, would you hear me? And he says their, their ears aren't circumcised. But what does that mean? The, the prophet goes on to explain what he means. He says, behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. This is what God says when he comes to deal with the uncircumcised ear. When he comes to deal with those who from the heart have no interest in him as the Lord their God. He says that, he says that their uncircumcision of ear is actually this. That they have no delight in the word. Beloved, that strikes close to home, doesn't it? He says to have an uncircumcised ear is to approach the word of God without delight. But we go even further. Beloved, to hold this God as ours, we are to acknowledge all of his perfections. And so a failure to do so, beloved, of course, is a violation. And you see this in Psalm 10. The wicked, through their pride of countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. We could stop there, couldn't we? The psalmist says the wicked, this is how he describes the wicked, the wicked have God not in their thoughts. That's not what the psalmist says. He says the wicked have God not in all of their thoughts. This is, this is the scripture's definition of what it is to be a wicked man. Not that they don't have thoughts about God, but that as it were the Lord Jehovah doesn't haunt their thoughts, doesn't haunt all of their thoughts. Such that he goes on to say, he hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Again, you see something quite similar. You see, you see that not only is it the case that, that men disregard the perfections of God, but they also disregard that he's the source of all goodness. 
She did not know, says the Lord about Israel, that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal. You see what he's saying? They've not taken me as their God. They've sought out other gods and they have attributed the goodness that I have given them to their vanities. They've not acknowledged that I am the fount, the source of all the good that they've received. But we can go even further, couldn't we? we? We can talk about here the undue love of creatures. And probably the most clear and most cutting example of that being Eli. When men make the cause of their loved ones greater than the cause of God. That too, beloved, that too is a violation of the law. But we can go just one step further, can't we? The apostle says, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Beloved, unbelief is not, according to this commandment, unbelief is not benign. To take God as our God is to entrust ourselves to him. And a failure to do so, says the Apostle, is to do nothing but to blaspheme him, to call him a liar. It's not a small thing then when the Christian says, help thou my unbelief. It's not a small thing when men complain that they need more faith. Beloved, what they're pleading for God to do is to keep them from blasphemy. The scriptures hold out all of these things to us in so many ways. And, and we could summarize really the substance of the law and its, what's forbidden there with the example given to us, as I've already cited before, in Habakkuk. There the prophet says, They sacrifice unto me, that's the Lord, they, sorry, they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag. And why do they do that? prophet goes on to say, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. You see how the Lord then is explaining to us throughout his word what this law involves. When he says, have no other gods before me, he is saying that I must and I alone ought to be the object of your worship. He's saying that all good ought to be traced back to me as its source. And he's saying very pointedly that when you do receive good, you are to acknowledge these things not because of their secondary cause, but because of their primary, which is the Lord himself. And furthermore, beloved, he's saying very pointedly, I am the one in whom you are to trust unconditionally, fully and from the heart. And so, beloved, this is a text that searches us, doesn't it? At least it should. A professor of mine put it this way. He said, men, their greatest struggle, our greatest struggle, is always to locate ourselves in our own sin. Here the law lays open to us, clearly, what is forbidden. But even as it does so, beloved, it sets before us, doesn't it? Things with which we are all too familiar But what about the law itself? What about its reasonableness or its equity? How are we supposed to understand the evil of the violation of this command? Briefly this evening, I want us to consider that under two 
two subheadings. First of all, I want us to consider it under the foolishness of the whole. And then I also want us to consider its evil. Take the foolishness itself. In Isaiah 44, you have one of the clearest pictures of that, don't you? There, the Lord says through his prophet that those who worship idols, they do so with, with incredible, with incredible blindness. Because what they do is, is they take that very piece of wood with which they carve their idols, they take that and then they throw the other piece in the fire. The very same piece of wood that they made their idol out of. They bow down and worship one and cry to one, deliver me, while they warm themselves with a very piece of wood with which they made their God. And beloved, those, those who break this commandment, beloved, it stands totally against reason, doesn't it? Those who had placed something like their work, those who had placed men in the place that Jehovah alone ought to be, They're just like the idolater in Isaiah 44. They are worshipping a creature very much like themselves, of the dust. I think a clear example of that is what I've read to you already last Lord's Day evening, and that being of Micah in Judges 18. You remember in that text that there Micah has been plundered by the children of Dan, and and he's plundered of his idols and of his priests, and and he goes to them, and he costs them with this, with this simple, simple statement. He says, ye have taken away my gods which I made, and the priest, and ye are gone away. And then he asks the question, and what have I more? And, and, what, is, and what is this that ye say unto me? What aileth thee? And as we read that text, how are we supposed to understand Micah? Well, well we're supposed to understand that he's a man who's been abused. He's a man who's been plundered. He's a man who's desperate, and he's a fool. Note what he says. In the text, he says, you have taken away the gods which I made. And he says, by having these things removed from me, I have nothing. And you can imagine the children of Dan turning around and saying, well, make some more. But the idolater doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it. The blindness of his heart prevents him from seeing it. I mean, beloved, just think for a moment about the person who idolizes their work. Tell them that that these things are not so important. Tell them that they can't lodge all of their hope and expectation from their career. And their eyes will gloss over. They can't see the foolishness of it, but the scriptures hold these things out to us so clearly. But we can go a step further, can't we? We can talk about the actual evil that lies within them. When men, when souls make something other than the Lord Jehovah, the object of their worship, beloved, you see in Haggai 1 what they're really doing. You remember the prophet says this, he says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Is it time for you to take up your own cause and your own comfort while while the worship of your God is neglected? While the cause of God is despised? Is, Is that the right thing to do? Consider your ways, the refrain is. And beloved, as you come to Ezekiel 16, you see the malice of that. 
Because there, there the Lord comes to the church and he says, All thine abominations and thy whoredoms, thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, when thou wast naked and bare and was polluted in thy blood. You see what the Lord is saying. He's saying to you who have professed to have the Lord your God, to you who are now live in the visible church, all of these benefits have been poured out on you. And you've forgotten that they've come to you only out of free grace. And now, instead of taking yourself to the God who has been so kind, you've sought out vanities. You you have entrusted yourself to other redeemers. And strikingly in this text, there the prophet presents those things as whoredoms and abominations. Beloved, what you have here is a reminder that to take another God, to have another God other than the Lord, and all that that entails, is one of the grossest expressions of deep ingratitude. Beloved, imagine just for a moment a son who has been so well kept by a father. Imagine a son who has been fed so well. And, and filled with all that was necessary for his life and well-being. Imagine a son who's in a home where he has images time and again of the goodness of his father. And then he leaves the house and all that he can do is take the very things that the father has given to him and use them only to support his father's enemies to take the very gifts that his father gave him and use them against him. And beloved, that doesn't even come into a fraction, a fraction of what the unbeliever does as they still refuse to make the Lord Jehovah their God. All these things freely given and still in their ingratitude, they only use them and abuse them in sin. But thirdly and finally, we come Beloved, to the execution of all of these things. And we take here, first of all, a negative example. What is it not to have the Lord God as ours? We have an example in Psalm 78. The people of Israel ask, can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God, or trusted in his salvation. You have another example in Psalm 81. There the Lord says to his people, Open thou thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up to their own heart's loss. Beloved, how reasonable is it that the Lord God would come and say that you are to worship me, the only living God. That you are to see me as the source of all good. That you are to entrust yourself entirely to me. Beloved, that's a command, but as creatures of the earth, certainly that's a command that's most reasonable. And then when God does come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and says, though you have undone yourself, your help is in me. And we still refuse, then 
then the examples in our text certainly also stand to reason, don't they? Israel would have none of me, and so I've given them over to their own heart's lust. Israel asked, could I indeed save them? And so he left them. Left those who were the unbelieving generation in the very wilderness that they thought they would have to be left in because God wouldn't or couldn't save. Beloved, as we look at this text and as we come to a close, what do we find? Beloved, I hope that we find a mirror of sorts because we need one. We need one. This is the law of our God. This is the word that reveals to us what true normalcy is, what true human normalcy is. It's that law that sets before us what men ought to do. And yet, beloved, as we read over these things, how hard indeed is it for us to find ourselves guilty of breaking it? And I'm not speaking about the distant past. I'm not speaking here this evening about some time far removed from this moment. Do we see how the law of God shows to us that we are a people who need to be marked by repentance? And Christian, I know, I know the time in which we live. I know the coldness and the deadness that's around us, and I know that we partake of it. But here the law of God comes to us, tells us what the Lord God would have us do. And it's a reasonable law, is it not? It stands perfectly with logic that that the Lord, the only living God, would have him and him only the object of our worship, devotion, our trust. And yet, can't we say that we're a people time and again who sought out other cisterns? If that's the case, then, beloved, we do have to ask the question, how should we receive such things? I think the answer, in part, lies in a text. A text from 2 Kings. Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. This text and contemplating the law should ask us the question, why don't we see this today? And I'm not standing as your minister over you at all in any of this. We partake of so much deadness, don't we? We have the law of God written to, given to us so clearly. But how rare is it to find men and women really convinced under it, and even in the church? But the second application from this is so crucial, and we close with this. Beloved, if you've read, if you've read the law of God, and you've come away from it saying that these things only breathe out condemnation to me as I stand in myself, as I stand in Adam the first, then in part you've read the law correctly. But if you sat under this preaching, beloved, and your first response is, well, I need to do better, and, and these, things, these things are only driving me to be more resolved, 
Then below it all, I would suggest to you we need to go back to what even we thought about this morning. Because this law, as it comes to us now, is to drive us to Christ who alone can reform us. Is only of His fullness. That what this law exposes wrong in us can in fact be rectified. And beloved, as we think about these things, these things should draw us to Christ. If you've listened to this law and you've thought, well, well, these things I need to mend so that then I can go to Christ, you've missed it altogether. You've gotten the order entirely reversed. The law should drive you to Him and to His fullness. But I want to submit to you this evening that not only should it draw us to Christ, but it should do so with a whip. There is a comfort in this text, even, even in this law that we can't miss. Well, the Lord comes to us and He says, you shall have no other gods but the Lord. What does that mean? Allow me to deal for a moment with the doubting soul. The doubting soul would ask the question, am I permitted to seek good from God's hand? Am I permitted to seek good as He offers Himself to me in Christ? Am I able, am I allowed to do so? Beloved, this command comes to us telling us that 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 invitation is a binding invitation. This law comes to us and says, not only is it that are you invited to take hold of the Lord God as yours, but you are commanded. You are commanded to find the Lord Jehovah as the only one in whom you would trust. The only one who is your altogether good and and gracious, benevolent God. And so, beloved, the, the law, even here, comes to us as it does through the covenant of grace, and it drives us to take hold of God in Christ. If we won't hear the cries of a meek Christ coming and crying as he does in John 7, come and feed on me and hunger no more. If we won't hear those calls, well then go to Sinai and hear this one. Because this one says you must comply with the gospel. You are commanded to do so. That God the Lord might be yours. And he can only be yours through Jesus Christ. And so beloved, the exhortation from this text is... It's not simply to love God more. It is to seek Him through the Lord Jesus Christ and all that that entails. To to seek, yes, repentance and all of those things, but to seek them through the fullness that is in Christ. Because, beloved, this is a law that comes to us from the hand of a Redeemer. As it comes to us in the church, as it comes to us as believers... It comes to us crying that we would seek these things from the one who's been made unto us by God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And indeed, may the Lord help us to do so, even this evening. Amen.